0: The first week in the Reformation celebration, we studied the life of who? Anybody remember? No, o- was, was Augustine II? All right, so we, we first week we studied Martin Luther, all right? And he was kind of like a, a verbal brawler, okay? He was called the drunken monk. And you can actually go to, interesting enough, you can go to um, Martin Luther Insult generator. Google it. And you <laughs> somebody took upon themselves the responsibility of putting together all of Martin Luther's insults, and <laughs> every day you can have a new insult from Martin Luther. He was, uh, he was quick with his mouth. He was a verbal brawler. As a matter of fact, the, the, the primary foremost theologian on Martin Luther said this, that if Martin Luther lived today, he, he would in vain seek a seat at any seminary, college, university or church. Nobody will have him as pastor. He was kind of a rough guy. But God needed somebody like him and used somebody like him to spark what we know now as the great reformation. We stand upon the shoulders of these great reformers of old. I'm reminded of Votie who said something. To somebody who said, hey, voting, where, where did you learn all these things about the Bible? He says, all my mentors are dead. I learned from dead people. And so in the last couple of weeks, we have learned from a couple of dead people. After Martin Luther, we studied the life of Augustine or Augustine. And Augustine, um, you know, Augustine was so instrumental in, let's say, psychology. Like, he's the guy that actually... Identified and articulated the subconscious. I mean, these men really brought us out of the dark ages. Now, Augustine, of course, lived in the, in the 400s, but uh, these reformers brought it out of the dark ages into enlightenment by handing us the very word of God. So we got, we're very, very thankful for that. Today, we're learning from the theologian, the foremost theologian of the Reformation, and his name is none other than John Calvin. John Calvin moved to, this is noisy. I'm going to try and move it. Is that okay? Tell me if it's still noisy, okay? John Calvin moved to a city called Geneva in Switzerland. He was only going to be there for one day when one of the main ministers in Geneva heard that he's there and already had discovered this diamond of a reformer during those years, he went and he found uh, uh, Calvin at night, and he begged him to set up shop, it's a horrible way of saying, to pitch his tent and start ministering from Geneva because Geneva needed Calvin. Well, Calvin said, absolutely not. I'm interested in a calm life somewhere hidden away where I can just study the Bible and write. I want to be an author. I don't want to talk to people. I don't want to work with people. He was a real, uh, um, he was the exact opposite of Martin Luther, by the way. He never wanted to be known. Had, uh, he, as a matter of fact, when he passed, just before he passed away, he called the leaders of the city of Geneva and said he wanted to be buried, and this is his last wish. His death wish was that he would be buried in an unmarked grave so no one would even know where he lay, because he does not want to draw men to himself in any way. He did not want to be remembered. And he didn't want anybody to travel there to come and see his grave. He had a secret ceremony uh, when they buried him. Well, here he is one night in Geneva, passing through to a very quiet spot where he was going to retire and study the Word. But this theologian in the city came to him, begged him to stay. He said, absolutely not. And this man started threatening him, saying that if you do not stay... God will curse all of your works forever. (laughs) This guy, Calvin, he was so uh, struck with fear, he decided to stay. And so this is where his work happened. But as he was preaching in Geneva, so much happened in that city that the whole entire city became reformed and Rome lost its hold. The Roman Catholic Church lost their hold on everybody in that city. Everybody under the voice of Calvin absolutely rejected the Roman Catholic Church at the time. Well, the only thing is, the people at that time lived in really harsh times. I want to read to you some of what was going on in that time so that you can just have context, backdrop to what it was like for these people who lived there, okay? And I want to read to you from uh, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. It says this, Life was harsh during Calvin's time, even brutal in the 16th century. There was no sewer system or piped water supply or central heating or refrigeration or antibiotics or penicillin or aspirin or surgery for appendicitis or Novocaine for tooth extraction or electricity for lights, for studying at night, or water heaters or washers or dryers or, sto- or stoves or ballpoint pens or typewriters or computers. Calvin, like many others in his days suffered from almost continuous illness. Because at the time, medicine hadn't yet taught them that they needed to wash their hands at all times. And there was no such thing as cleanliness equals health, right? So they always suffered with disease and sicknesses. And Calvin was a very frail man and almost always sick. But he never stopped working. He was so driven to see God's glory in him and around him, he never stopped working. When he was so sick he couldn't get out of bed... He made them put him on a chair, kind of like a stretcher, sort of, and they would carry him into the service where he was about to preach. And he preached thousands upon thousands of sermons. Well, just as it was very difficult for them in the natural, so it was difficult socially also. I want to continue reading just so that you can understand what the times were like. So he moves into Geneva. It says, the Libertines in Calvin's church in Geneva... Uh, like their counterparts of the first century Corinth uh, church at Corinth, reveled in uh, treating the communion of saints as a warrant for wife-swapping. So whenever it was time for communion, they gathered for those reasons. Calvin's opposition to this made him the victim of mob violence and musket fire for more than once. So to these very same people whom he loved, whom he taught, and whom he trained, they were very barbarian-like at the time, and even shot at him. But he was there not for their not for their purposes, but for God's purposes. There was a time, as a matter of fact, there was a time when they threw him out of the city for the same reasons. When they served communion, and everybody that lived in uh, in public sin, anybody that lived publicly in sin, he would not serve communion. Well. So they threw him out of the city, and a couple of interesting things about him. As they threw him out of the city, um, Rome at the time thought, well, this is a wonderful moment for us to re-enter into Geneva and reclaim that area for the Roman Catholic Church. And so what they did was they they sent their most articulate um, man of God in the Roman Catholic Church. He was a cardinal, cardinal... Satellet, in 1539, wrote this open letter to everybody in that area in Geneva and told them to come home. It's time to come home to the only church. And when the fathers of the city saw what was happening, they didn't have a means or they didn't have the theological ability to actually respond to the Roman Catholic Church at the time to Satellet, that they went back to Calvin, whom they just threw out of the city and they begged him to respond to this open letter on their behalf. So Calvin goes, and he writes this letter on their behalf, responding to Saddlehead's request for them to come back to the only church. When he wrote this letter, it got printed, and it was sent around the world. Martin Luther, whom he had never met, but just so you know, Calvin got saved under Martin Luther's ministry, even though he never met him because he read all of his manuscripts. So he really admired Martin Luther, but Martin Luther got to read this response that Calvin wrote to Satellite, the Roman Catholic Church, and he responds this way. Martin Luther said, and I quote, Here is a writing which has hands and feet. I rejoice that God raises up such men. On another occasion, in a letter, Calvin writes back to Martin Luther, and he writes this. Would would that I could fly to you that I might, even for a few hours, enjoy the happiness of your society. For I would prefer, and it would be far better, to converse personally with yourself. But seeing that it is not granted to us on earth, I hope that shortly it will come to pass in the kingdom of God. Calvin loved Martin Luther. Martin Luther really respected Calvin, even though they never met, and even though they were polar opposites. In absolutely every single way but when you look at the life of Calvin Calvin is so vast His understanding his mind his thoughts his theology is so vast that in uh, to try and put your arms around Calvin is almost like trying to put your arms around the Atlantic Ocean it is absolutely impossible Calvin lived the life of 20 men in 50 some years he died I believe at age 54 there is no area of modern life where the influence of his thoughts does not permeate and doesn't touch and change. We see and feel the influence of his life in our lives today in many areas, in the church, in government, in economics, and in education. Now, we're going to later talk about his staggering level of influence in the church, but when it comes to government, Calvin believed that it's not possible to invest all powers of government into one human being like a king without it corrupting that human being, because of this belief that he had, he designed the governmental system we now know and we now call today as a republic. That was Calvin's brainchild. He designed a government with multiple branches that serve as checks and balances, similar to what we have today in the U.S. government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. When it comes to economics... He was the original mind behind free markets. He taught on it. He wrote on it. And the concept of restrained capitalism, even though that's not what they called it at the time. The right of private ownership of property, which is what he got out of the Old Testament. The right to own private property. The investment of private capital and resources. Here's one. The blessing of God. The blessing of God on the hand of the diligent also known as hard work he taught on the nobility of profitability the necessity to profit in order to fulfill the commandment of God in order to give to the poor he taught on all of that when it comes to education before the reformation education was only for the very wealthy and the noble right but when it comes to Calvin, he starts a college called the College of Geneva, and he made education possible to absolutely everybody. There's, it is said that within Geneva at one stage, there wasn't one person without a job. He made sure absolutely everybody had a job and income and was able to provide for themselves. He has been called the man of the millennium." Charles Spurgeon said and I quote, "No age before him, speaking of Calvin, no age before him produced his equal, and no age after him has seen his rival." Now, we stand downstream from the Reformation and live in what flows from there to us through the pen and the pulpit of the foremost theologian of the Reformation, which is John Calvin himself. We we are blessed by so much of what has come from that man. Today, I want us to simply peek into two of the of the, 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 the great things that came from him. Because we want to learn, we want to get lessons from Calvin today as we finish off our uh, Reformation celebration series. First, I would like to share a portion of his Christian worldview. It's just a different kind of worldview than what, ha- than what they had at the time. And then secondly, I'd like us to look to, into something a lot more doctrinal. First, let's look at his worldview. And this is just a portion of his worldview. So out of Calvin's theology came this reformed worldview that caused believers to live out of, the belief that, out of the belief that they had. They practiced everywhere that they went. It was a very pragmatic worldview. As a matter of fact, Calvin usually said that you have to speak the Plowman's language. He wanted to be able to stand up there, take deep spiritual concepts, and share it with uneducated minds. So practical, so understandable and so applicable, nobody else has ever done. Calvin never used any notes. He taught thousands of sermons on hundreds of different topics, never with notes. I can only wish. Here is the foundation of his worldview, a new worldview that they never had, and the church never taught them, and that is solu. Soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. Now Calvin taught that very uh, that everything we do in life, every duty in life, must be done for God's glory. And he found this on two verses. Romans 11:36 says, "For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things." To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Then also in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one it says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Calvin was of the opinion, it doesn't matter who you are, from the Pope to the poorest, whatever it is you happen to do, if it's not sin, You do it so God will be glorified at the end of your doing. This is why Warfield said of him, no man ever had a more profound view of God than Calvin. Calvin taught that the glory of God hovered over every farmer, over every coal miner, over every mother, Over every husband, over every teacher, over every businessman, the glory of God hovers over what you do. And that no matter what your career is, we're all to walk that out, every bit of it, for God's glory. He taught that all work is, in every bit of it, is sacred, as is ministry. This was a radical change in their worldview. Can you imagine these guys lived... In the dark ages and here comes this man and from scriptures he says okay now you understand the priesthood they they are of god from god to you but now he's saying but you too have a sacred calling in life and you don't have to give up what you're doing in order to fulfill the sacred calling it's actually the thing you're doing right now mom. It's actually the thing you're doing right now, husband. It's actually the thing you're doing right now, seamstress. It's actually the thing you're doing right now, coal miner. What you do with your life, whether eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. This had a profound impact on the citizens of Geneva, all of them. Their eyes were opened, and they saw that there was personal dignity and eternal value in all their work. I mean, there's something to be said about a person whose dignity comes from their diligence (laughs) versus the person who demands that you build up their dignity. They want to be dignified. They want to feel like they have dignity. And you need to keep telling them that they are dignified until they feel it versus the person that says, okay, let me roll up my sleeves and let me go to work and let me find... Dignity in life by the way I work and the things I do, because as I go and I serve God by what I do, whether I be a coal miner or a mother, stay-at-home mom, I do it to the glory of God. And when they do that, they started finding so much dignity and eternal worth in their work. They saw that everything they put their shoulders to was by God, from God, and for God. This is what they found in this new worldview that was emerging. No wonder the reformers were so key to pulling the whole entire world out of the dark ages into the light. They started recognizing that every opportunity to work, no matter what that work looked like, was sacred. I think it's good for us to hear this, especially in our culture. (laughs) Don't you think? Doesn't matter what that opportunity it is, is it's from God, and it's for God, no matter what that opportunity looks like. This dignified work, and it promoted hard work and diligence. The result of this teaching was that there, was, there emerged this energetic, industrious, Calvinistic, that's what they call it, a Calvinistic work ethic. Common laborers saw that their work was done, not for their bosses, but through their bosses to God. For his glory alone. For example, there's a reason why the greatest watches in all of the world and all of history comes out of that city of Geneva in Switzerland. Because at the time, Calvin actually addressed the watchmakers. He ministered to them. And I quote, he said this, when you stand before God one day, speaking to the watchmakers, you will see every watch that you ever made. It'll appear. And each watch made in excellence will be a source of God, of glory to God. Thus, you will give an account to God for every watch that you have ever made. I mean, the Bible does say we will give an account to every deed ever done. And so out of this medieval morass of low productivity and low morale came this Calvinistic work ethic. And suddenly, there was this new energy and there was this new dynamic to do all that they did to the glory of God it changed the world from Geneva out if you want to track and trace the reformation you will see it all comes from Geneva and specifically from his Bible school or from his school his college that he started from there many famous reformers went all over Scotland everywhere they came from his teaching So let's go to something a little bit more doctrinal, and let's look at what Calvin left us when it comes to formulating the Reformed theology back then for churches now. Protestantism today stands upon the theology of the Reformers. Let me say that again. Protestantism stands today upon the theology of the Reformers, and the foremost theologian of the Reformers is Calvin himself. Calvin was the architect of Reformed theology. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about Calvin and Luther. He said, and I quote, Luther was a volcano spewing out fiery ideas into all directions without patterns or systems. But ideas cannot live and last without a body. A great need in the last days of Luther was for a theologian with the ability to rearrange and express the new faith within a system that person was Calvin. Calvin was able to take all of reformed thought and theology that came from Scripture and put it into systems and systematically so that we could understand it and treasure it and keep it and stand upon it. Martin Lloyd-Jones continues he says without John Calvin the Protestant movement would have died out by the end of the 16th century. Because he makes the case for the fact that an idea cannot exist long without a body because the body has to go and share the idea preserve the idea execute the idea teach the idea and that body was Calvin this systematic ordering of Reformed theology comes to us in different works that Calvin did I want to share the first work that he wrote because it's just interesting now he wrote much all right, but I want to sh- just point this out to you The one work that I'm very, very intrigued by is the Institutes of the Christian Religion. You can go buy it. The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which turned out to be the greatest theological work to come out of the Reformation, still is today. All Protestantism stands upon this work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, where he formulates theology from beginning to end. Calvin was converted, if you consider this, at the age of 24. He wrote this foundational work at the age of 25. (laughs) Amazing. One year after becoming born again, he writes the encyclopedia all modern-day Protestantism still stands on. He actually made hardly any reference to himself. He lost his wife. He lost his son. whose name was Jacques, by the way. He lost so much. He went through so many hard times. He was thrown out of the city, all of the above. He never spoke about anything except about God's glory. Isn't that amazing? Didn't want to be known. Didn't even want his name on a gravestone. He just wanted to live for the glory of God. And so everything we know about him, we know from others but we have all the history about this man's life to this day the institute is still the foundational theological work on which Protestantism stands written by a 25 year old who had only been born again one year Calvin's second work uh, that serves as a foundational theological work are his his commentaries in these commentaries Uh, Calvin taught the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. These commentaries are 24 out of the 39 Old Testament Testament books. He taught from verse to verse to verse to verse. Commentary on each verse. um, uh, How many books? 24 books out of the 39 Old Testament books. And then every single New Testament book, with the exception of 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. In other words, more than 80% of the Bible, he has a commentary on Now, something interesting that happened was Calvin went from verse to verse. That's how he taught. He never taught verse 3 if he didn't first teach verse 2. Why? Because he needed to teach everything within context. That's why you can trust the understanding of the commentaries on those verses because they're all within that context. He gets thrown out of Geneva. He comes back about two years later. They ask him to come back. Against his will, he comes back and he steps behind the same pulpit he was thrown out a couple of years prior. He opens his Bible to the very next verse that he ended up two years before and he keeps on teaching <laughs> exegetically. That's how he taught. So he writes these commentaries and it basically outlines the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. What is the grace of God? How does the grace of God work? What power does the grace of God exert? Who receives the grace of God? What does the person look like when the grace of God has touched their hearts? What is the grace of God? How can we receive the grace of God? The doctrines of grace scripturally, systematically laid out in all of these commentaries. Now if you look at the doctrines of grace, um, Robert, do you mind getting me that board right over there? The doctrines of grace we know today in an acronym, and the acronym is TULIP. This is John Calvin's teaching. Now he didn't come up with this acronym, thanks boy, he didn't come up with this acronym but last night um, we were taught this acronym by the Marshall family because we had this celebration here last night called the Reformation Celebration and please make sure to come next year. Um, October the 31st we will do this again as we celebrate the nailing of the 95 thesis but the Marshall family taught us in short it in a nutshell the doctrines of grace as taught by Calvin and TULIP stands for the, the T stands for total depravity this was their board that they made so I asked them if I could use it the T stands for total depravity which means man was made in God's image and God's likeness but then fell into sin and died and then God, because He loved them, He came and He wanted a bride for his, wife, for his son. And He came and He chose a bride for His son. And then His son died for that bride, paid the penalty of her sin by His blood. And God effectually comes and He actually raises them from spiritual death to life. Just like He stood in front of the grave and He raised Lazarus from the dead he didn't try to raise lazarus from the dead he rose lazarus from the dead he was effectual he was successful and he doesn't ever fail in what he goes to do and he came to raise dead people back to life and that was his church so that she could marry his son jesus christ and then at the end those whom he births anew he will keep because jesus said i will lose not one except for uh judas the son of perdition who was chosen before time to be the son of perdition that was god's purpose that was god's plan it wasn't because jesus wasn't a good shepherd he is a good shepherd he loses none he will leave 99 and he will find that one and he will make sure that he will preserve all those whom he came to save he will lose not any part of his bride those are the doctrines of grace very clearly outlaid in um, Calvin's works, uh, in his um, commentaries. So thanks to the marshals for making that. I appreciate it. Through these and many other works, Calvin, of course, brought definition to theological, uh, theological plumb line our beliefs or you might say a theological measuring stick for the church today and uh, Calvin wrote heartedly embraced the five solas and I want to also just mention the five solas to you because I think this is so important since he preached this uh, with fire in his bones the five solas is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone according to scriptures alone for God's glory alone this is very important especially for them back then it's important for us now here's why because remember now They were under a state-run church. They were under the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, it really is clear as to why that was so key for them and so important for them because he taught not by works, not by deeds, but by grace alone. Not through the sacraments, not through confession, not through penance, but through faith alone not in mary not in the saints but in christ alone not according to the church not according to the priests not according to the pope but according to the scriptures alone not for the glory of rome but for the glory of god alone for by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone according to scripture alone for god's glory alone and the key word there is alone Because they love to throw deeds in there. They love to throw works in there. They love to throw sacraments, confessions, penance. They love to throw Mary in there. All these saints in there, the priest, the church, the pope. They love to throw Rome in there. And they said, nope, we're drawing the line. So as you can see, whether it be TULIP or whether it be the five solas or whether it be now the doctrines of grace, everything is very systematically laid out so we can understand Bible doctrine. He taught in the language of the plowman. So today, I want to finish off by showing you the doctrines of grace according to, or excuse me, the golden chain of salvation according to Calvin as he taught it in his commentaries. And uh, this is basically just a little foretaste also for all those of you that are interested in joining midweek discipleship starting January next year. Probably the end of January, and sign-ups will start next week. But if you wanted to uh, study more in-depth theology this way, make sure to join Wednesday nights. It's online, and it's in person. It's one hour between 7 and 8 every single Wednesday night. And um, it's more like college courses, so you would really love it. But I want to show you how Calvin outlined the process of salvation. I think it's too cold in here. It is too cold in here. Thank you. Dave, Tina Bell, let Dave, it's, Dave's good. If you ever had the question, how did I get saved? What happened? Um, what's the process? Like, how did I get from death to life? From darkness to light? From secular to Christian? How did, how did that process take place? Did I just pray this in His prayer, or did I just what? What did I do? How did I get saved? And so, the doctrines of grace shows us that because the Bible's very clear that by grace through faith you've been saved. By grace through faith you've been saved. Not of yourselves. You did not save you. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. It was none of you, it was all of him. He will share none of his glory with any man. So the order of salvation is found in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles with you, just uh, turn there with me. If you have your Bibles here today. Romans chapter 8. Let's go to verse 28. And there's a very, very well-known verse there that we, that we tend to quote every single time something bad happens. Here's that verse. I'll read it to you. And we know, what? That God causes all things to work together for the good. He causes all things to work together for the good. To those who love Him and are, what? Called according to His purposes, not theirs. Okay, so, what we do is we go like, Oh, you know that car accident? Don't worry about it. God's going to make all things work together for the good. Oh, you know what? That girlfriend broke up with the guy. Don't worry about it, dude. God's working all things together for the good. It's going to be fine. God knows what He's doing. So we love to grab that verse and use it every single time we have bad news. But really, that whole portion is about God working our salvation. So He's working all things necessary for salvation together for our good. He's working all things necessary for our salvation together for our good, so we may be saved. So it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purposes. Four, verse twenty-nine, those whom He foreknew. Can you all say foreknew? He also predestined. Can you say predestined? And uh, then it says to be conformed, to come to to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the first among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. Can you also say called? And these whom He called, He also justified. Can you say justified? Yeah. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Can you say glorified? Yeah. All right, so there are the five links within the chain of salvation. Today's an oversight. Wednesday nights, we, we actually spend, I don't know, five weeks. But this is step by step by step how God brings a dead man back alive. A man completely lost in darkness into the light of his knowledge." So you might say, okay, well, Jacques, what does it mean to foreknow? By the way, ordo salutis is Latin for order of salvation. Well, to foreknow can be viewed not just in one way, it has to be viewed in two ways. To be foreknown is to know about beforehand. In other words, when God knew about you beforehand, we're going to find out when God knew about you a little later, but He knew you beforehand. But He didn't just know facts about you. The Bible uses the word know as the word love. The Bible oftentimes says, for that man knew that woman and they had a child. God for loved you. He foreunderstood you. He foreidentified you. He foreloved loved you. Then it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What is predestined? Predestined is basically to decide the end beforehand. Decide the end beforehand. He predestined you. Romans. 8, 28, 29. Then he says, well, let me, let me show you that elsewhere because people go like, well, that's, that's maybe missing. Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 because it's really everywhere in the Bible. Let me just show you Ephesians chapter 1. We can answer a few questions here. Did he really predestined us? We'll show you that in this Romans chapter 1. In, Romans cha- in Ephesians chapter 1, excuse me. We can also find out when He predestined us and when He foreknew us. Let's first ask, answer that question. When did He foreknow you? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. It says this. Just as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. He chose you in Him, When? before the foundation of the world why that we would be holy and blameless before him in love how did he do it he predestined us to adoptions as sons through jesus christ he predestined us as sons he predestined you as a son he decided the end beforehand and what did he decide that you will be a son in jesus christ beforehand. Why? Because He already loved you. He, before the foundations of the world, loved you. He foreloved you. Let's read through that again, just so that it sinks in. Just as He, verse 4, just as He chose us in Him, before the foundations of the world, that's when He chose you, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That's the reason why. How did He do it? In love. He predestined us as sons. Through Jesus Christ himself. And then he continues and it says, Okay, what was the measuring stick? Are you ready? Why did he do it for you? You're so great. Why did he do it for you? What makes you so special? He answers that. He says, According to the kind intention of his will, not yours. According to the kind, will of, uh, the kind intention of his will, not yours. To the praise, glory. Of his grace. He freely bestowed us in the beloved. All right, so, since we know that God, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, that God foreloved you, therefore, he decided your end from the beginning. He therefore calls you. Romans chapter 8, 29. Now, excuse me, now we're in verse 30 already. He calls you. Now, this is something that we always used to do this, okay? God's called you, brother. What does that mean? When somebody says to you, hey, God's called you, brother. What does that mean to you? Like, really? Wait, did you want me to go to Africa? Where is he calling me to? And uh, so people go like, no, i got a calling. Now I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. God could call you to China to go and work there. But this calling here is actually not delegating responsibility. It's not a delegating of a duty. It's not a commission. It's a drawing. Why? because we're actually talking about Romans chapter 8, where he's outlining salvation. He's not outlining duty. He's not outlining ministerial duties. He's outlining how a person gets saved. And so, this calling has to do with a calling that we find elsewhere in the scriptures. In Acts 16, verse 31, it's very clear how the calling came to everybody, the Jews and the and the Gentiles, as the apostles were preaching the gospel. So the gospel goes to people's ears. You sit and you talk to somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ on the job, they are being called by the gospel. The gospel is a calling to the cross. That's what the gospel is. And so many people hear the gospel. Many. But how many get saved? All of them? No. But all are all are being called, many are called. Many are called, but not all are being not all are coming. Why not? Because calling external calling is not the only necessity for somebody to come to Christ. Many are called, few are chosen though. Let me show you what Jesus said about the second calling. The first calling is external. The second calling is internal. The second calling is effectual. The second calling is always successful. The, the, the external calling, not always, because a lot of people stand on the corners of the streets downtown preaching the gospel and not everybody's coming to the Lord. A lot of altar calls have been held in churches today not everybody's coming to the Lord. A lot of family members, your family members, have heard the gospel, but they're not serving God because they've heard the gospel, the external calling, but they haven't got an internal calling because the internal calling is always effectual. Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and he came out of death into life. Jesus didn't try to raise him from the dead. Jesus didn't attempt to? He did it. Jesus didn't try to save the Apostle Paul. He saved him. Right? So let's look at that. Let's turn to John 6:44, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 6:44. I'll show you the internal calling, the effectual calling. John 6:44. giving you a nutshell version of some of Calvin's commentaries, John 6.44. By the way, on that note, we don't, uh, we don't go by any name. We are a non-denominational Bible church, just so you know. <laughs> some people like to throw you into, into um, yeah. categories, not jail, categories. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, sweetheart. <laughs> John She always wants to know two things. Is she going to be under a vest? So sweetheart is under arrest. Okay, where's my mask? I don't want to be under a vest. And then she goes, because, you know, we don't want to have the coronavirus. <laughs> John 6:44. Now, this is not Luther speaking. This is not Calvin speaking. This is not John Knox speaking. This is not Wycliffe speaking. This is not Billy Graham speaking. This is Jesus. You ready? Jesus. He says this, no one can. Can you repeat that with me? No one can. Okay, this talks about human inability. No one includes everyone. And he says, no one can. That means everybody cannot. There's not a person alive that can it's human inability. That's why Jesus said, what is impossible with man is what? Possible with God. Nicodemus was asking Jesus, well, how can I be born again? He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And here he repeats himself. He says, no one can. It is impossible. He says, no one can do what? Come. Come. Didn't say that he says, no one can come. Jesus speaking to everybody. He's telling, follow me, follow me, follow me. They go like, oh, you want me to follow you? He says, no one can come. And then he says, what? Where to? To me. Hmm. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay? Human inability to come to Jesus is the actual reality people cannot come to be saved by the one they view as enemy because the bible says our minds are at enmity with god he's our enemy while we were dead in our sins no one can come to him unless god does something draws it. now People go, okay, well, yeah, you know what? I've been feeling a drawing in my heart, or, you know, I'm just believing God's going to woo that person to himself. Like a lover, you know, like a guy trying to woo a woman to himself. And people think that's what the word draws means there, but that very same word in the original is used everywhere throughout the scriptures in a very, very different context. I'll give you one of the contexts. It is when the disciples were fishing, And they had put their nets out. And the Bible said that when the nets were full, almost bursting and breaking and ripping, they pulled that out of the water into the boat. They drew that net into the boat. Did they woo those fish into that boat? No. It's not the word we think it is. It's not wooing. Please, can you jump in the boat? Another context is that when they draw water out of a well, they're actually pulling it successfully out of that well. It's not a wishing, a begging, come to me, come to me, water. No, it's an actual physical, uh, a powerful drawing, exercising enough power to succeed in getting the water out, exercising enough power to succeed at getting the fish into the boat. The power of God is stronger than your resistance. So here we see that there's this calling to those whom He predestined. And He predestined them, why? Because He already foreloved them. So if you're foreloved, He will decide your end beforehand. And when He decides your end beforehand, He will call you. And here is the way He calls you. He sends somebody to preach the gospel to you. And when you hear the gospel, there it is, an effectual call, an effectual call, a successful call. This is the call Jesus was talking about. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draws the fish out of the water, the water out of the the well, is a drag. The word is actually drag. So no one can come to the Father, no one can come to me unless the Father drags him out of death into life. Just like you will rip your child out of the flames. So God drags you out of death into life. Just like Jesus called and upon the word Lazarus, still tied up, just came, still tied up all the way, feet and hands. Go read it. He came out. Jesus didn't try. He did it. There's an Old Testament example of this. It's uh, when the prophet went and he prophesied to the dry bones, right, in the valley of the dry bones. God said to him, now, see this? And he saw this valley filled with bones, dry, dead, death, and he says, speak to these bones. Tell them to live. But now don't forget, this is the same story. This is the same principle as Jesus speaking to a dead Lazarus. And the prophet spoke to the dry bones. And the Bible said as he spoke to the dry bones, those bones that was like a big mountain of bones started moving in the formation of men everywhere, just skeletons everywhere. And as he prophesied to them, the wind blew from every side upon the bones that were lying in that valley. And the bones started standing up. And as they were standing up, sinews were forming around those bones and around that body. And the wind blew. And as the wind blew, they came alive. And the Bible said they stood as a mighty army, alive how so it's the exact same story it's the word spoken to those who are dead and God's wind breathes over the bones and he makes alive the dead and they stand up and they live as a mighty army serving in his kingdom God always brings life to the person by breathing into him just like he did Adam he breathed into him and he lived He breathed with His wind over the dry bones, and they stood up like a mighty army, and they lived. It's important to understand because we will see that the moment the external calling comes, hear the gospel, the effectual calling comes, and the wind blows. The Holy Spirit blows. Now, you can go read the the whole account of Jesus and Nicodemus speaking late at night. And Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Because he said in John 3, 3, unless you were born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. You can't see it. You're blind. But if you're born again, you'll see it and you'll be able to enter it. And then Jesus says this interesting thing. He says, the wind blows wherever it wills. And you can't see it, but you can see the effects thereof. You can't see it, but you can see the effects that have. Can you see God saving somebody? No, but you can see now that they are saved. They don't have to do things to be saved. They love doing, now, doing things now, biblical things now, glorifying God, living for God because they're saved, right? And so we see here that the moment God calls us or drags us to, into Christ We're alive. That is where regeneration takes place. That is where born again experience takes place. The regeneration experience takes place because God, the Father, dragged you out of death into Christ. Now, when I got saved, I thought I did that. But now when I read the Bible, I see God did it. He was so good, He did it even when I didn't deserve it. What happens when a person's regenerated or when he's born again? Well, that's when he comes alive. That's when he comes alive. That's why people say, you're like, I got saved in 1964. I remember it as clear as daylight. I was blind, then I got, then I saw. I mean, my life changed. He touched me. That's what happened right there. The born-again experience, the regeneration. It happens after the external calling, and it happens because God drags you out of death into life now what happens then is you have a new heart you know somebody said this day uh yesterday what am i talking about it was this week sometime somebody posted on facebook something that i thought was pretty remarkable because it's so well explained it said this and i reposted it you did not give your heart to jesus to get saved that's not what you did Jesus gave you a new heart. That's why you saved. Isn't this our new covenant? The covenant that we have with Him is that He would take out the stony heart, the unbelieving heart, the heart that cannot believe, cannot have faith, cannot love. He takes out that heart that cannot respond and He puts in a heart of flesh, a heart that can believe, a heart that can love, and a heart that can be convicted. He puts in that heart. can respond so when a person gets saved it's not that they gave their heart to jesus it's that god gave them a new heart that is when they came alive you're like well what does that have to do with this well the moment you regenerated or born again you receive a new heart instead of the old hard heart that cannot believe you now have a new heart that's a believing heart you have a believing heart This is a gift. I'll show it to you. You have a heart that repents before God and loves God and desires God. He gives you the desire of your heart. He works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Suddenly, you want to do His good pleasure. Why? Because He gave you a new heart. Your response is a result of you being born again, regenerated, or receiving a new heart. That's a response. It's not the effect, regeneration is not the effect of faith. Okay, now you go like, okay, Jacques, why, this is complicated, explain it to me. Okay, well, God gives you a gift called faith. Oftentimes, I would tell people, come on, come on, muster up all the faith you can and put it in Christ because I want you to be born again and come to heaven with me. Muster up all the faith you can. Do it. Put your faith in Christ. God goes, okay, okay, okay now. I'll try. This is so boring. But yeah. You know what? The Bible says that... The Bible says that to the lost, the cross is foolishness. This is foolishness to the person who's lost. Absolute foolishness. But to the one who's saved, they're humbled. Because God, I didn't... I didn't even choose you. You chose me. Isn't that what he says? Could you find that verse, meeting? So... Let me show you, when God gives you a brand new heart, it's a heart that has faith and a heart that does repent. Because both faith and repentance are not works, they are gifts from God. You say, really? Yep, it is. Doesn't the Bible say, for by grace you've been saved, how? Through faith. And then it says, and that, and that, not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. Faith. And that, not of yourselves; it is a gift from God. He gives you faith to believe in Christ, and He gifts you repentance so that you can turn to God. You go. Where's that? Well, when the apostles were teaching, they thought they're teaching the, the gospel. They thought that the gospel was only for the uh, for the Jew, right? And so here Paul goes, and Paul's preaching to the Gentiles, and they were watching. Paul preaching to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were getting saved, turning to God, and being filled with the Holy Ghost. And they turned to each other, the apostles, and they said, well, it appears, it is pretty evident to us right now, that God is also granting repentance to the Gentiles. He is now gifting them with the gift of repentance. So here, folks, here is where we are at. If you are able to believe and repent, it is because... God has regenerated you, and God has regenerated you, birthed you anew, because you heard the gospel, and you heard the gospel that way because He already decided your end beforehand, and He did so because He loved you then before the foundations of the earth. It is all of God and none of us. This right here, faith and repentance, is conversion. What happens the moment you exercise faith? Justified. Isn't that the very truth that Martin Luther found? That justification through faith alone and not through penance, not through sacraments, not through confessions, but through faith alone in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that everywhere. It says that in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, justified through faith alone. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, justified by faith alone. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, justified by faith alone. You are justified by faith alone. You go like Jacques, what is justification? Okay, this is justification. Justification is a declaration by the judge declaring your innocence. Imagine you're standing in a court and the judge goes, I therefore declare Steve Zalazzo innocent on all charges and he drops the gavel. The moment that gavel drops, case closed, stop talking, decision made. It's over the man is innocent it's a declaration of being right with God so the moment your heart believes God declares righteous and he drops the gavel justified you got right standing with God because you are now in Christ Jesus Then the Bible says those whom He foreknew He predestined, those whom He predestined He called, those whom He called He justified, those whom He justified He glorified. What is glorification? Glorification is when Jesus comes again, you have a glorified body, and you are going to be with Him. That's glorification. That hasn't happened yet. So that lies before us. We are currently have justification behind us for all those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, and for all those of us who repent toward God. We have been justified by the cross, declared righteous by God Himself. But we haven't yet gotten to glorification. So where are we? We're right in the middle there called sanctification. Sanctification is our incremental steps out of the flesh closer toward God at all times, out of the darkness into the light, becoming more and more like Jesus. But we will never arrive there until we see Him one day. Because the Bible says, says that when we see Him, We will be just as He is. Between now and then, we are being sanctified. We are being sanctified. I want you to turn, last verse with me to John 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John 15. John 15 verse 16, the Bible says this, Jesus speaking. Jesus says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, He will give it to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And herein lies the systematic thought process of the doctrine of the order of salvation as laid out by Calvin. You might say, Jacques, well, where are you landing with this? I'm saying this. Somebody asked John Calvin one day, how do I know that I was foreknown? How do I know that I was predestined? Don't you want to know? How do I know that? He says it's easy. Have faith in Jesus Christ. How do I know that this is true for me? It's easy. Have faith in Jesus Christ and repent. That's, that's how you know. Because until you were given the gift of faith and repentance, you couldn't turn to Him. You couldn't believe on Him. And so you say, well, Jacques, this is really humbling. Somebody came to me after the first service and said, well, I didn't deserve that. I know some people who don't serve Him who are better people than me. That's right. It's true for all of us, isn't it? But it's because he loved you, that's why. I said to her, why did your husband marry you? Because he loved you. And in the same way, why is it that this bride is getting to marry Jesus? It's because loved by God. It's a love story where somebody chooses another. Because of the love that they have for them. It's a love story. That's why marriage reflects Christ and the gospel. But if somebody else is saying, Well, I'm not like one of you guys who are humbled by a message I just heard, I am more like, Well, what about me? I want to repent, I want to have faith in Jesus Christ. But I don't know if I can, I don't know how, I don't know. I've heard Paul Washer say this and this has been true for me. In my understanding is counseling to pe- counseling people. Folks, if you're there and you're saying I need to I'm in the outside looking in and I need to make right with God. Then what you can do is you can beg God for his grace upon your life. Because this is how the grace of God works. God's grace is sufficiently working in you both to will and to do God's good pleasure. He is the one who can touch your will. He is the one who can give you a new heart. He is the one who gifts you with faith. He is the one who gifts you with repentance. He is the one who ordered salvation. He is the one who chooses. And he is the one who sanctifies. And he's the one who will glorify. That's why the Bible says, seek and keep on seeking and you will find but it's time to become urgent. If you're on the outside looking in, it's time to be urgent with God. Let's pray.